You recording? Yes. I'm JP Sears. I'm ultra spiritual. And I'm going to teach you how to be ultra spiritual today. First, what you need to understand is being ultra spiritual has nothing to do with actually being spiritual, because no one even knows what that actually is. Being ultra spiritual means you look spiritual. How spiritual are you? Do you consider yourself spiritual or maybe even ultra spiritual? As JP says, being spiritual has nothing to do with actually being spiritual. It only has to do with looking spiritual. So many of us playing the game of spiritual, our egos wrapped into and projecting some flavor of spiritual or awakened. So damn funny, JP and our egos are. There's also this thing called the great cosmic joke. What is this joke you might ask? This brilliance from an interview with Osho, the Indian mystic guru and spiritual teacher. Religion has been missing one very fundamental quality, the sense of humor. It's unfortunate because it has made religion sick. A sense of humor is an essential part of the wholeness of man. It keeps him healthy, young, and fresh. And for centuries, the sad people have dominated religion. They have expelled laughter from churches, mosques, and from temples. And the day laughter enters back into holy places, they will be really holy because they will be whole. Laughter is the only quality that distinguishes man from other animals. Only man can see the ridiculous, the absurd. Only he has the capacity and consciousness to be aware of the cosmic joke that existence is. It is a cosmic joke. It is not a serious affair. My take is this. Spirituality is the connection to a higher source, the loving existence that both creates and destroys a surrender to what is, a dissolving of the ego, even just for the smallest of moments to connect to something outside of ourselves, of our identity, of our intellect. There are any number of people who have come to spiritual experiences by different means, either by being in touch with a certain person, or even just going to certain places, being exposed to certain situations, or just accidentally out of their own life situations. Here, Sadhguru, the Indian spiritual leader and yogi whose work has touched the lives of millions worldwide, opens up the inquiry of what spirituality is and how we come to experience it. There are many paths to spirituality. Have you chosen a path? What gets you in touch with the divine, the all-loving, all-knowing, all-present source of life? Meditation, plant medicine, gurus, vision quests, religion, celibacy, spiritual centers, the list goes on and on into eternity. No one path is the correct path, and certainly no path is the correct path for each and every one of us. We are all so different. I firmly believe that we are all spiritual and just simply need to remove the layers of childhood wounding and conditioning to get to our core state of being, spiritual. It is more of an unraveling and unpeeling than it is a doing, becoming, or being. As the French idealist philosopher and Jesuit priest Pierre Teilhard de Chardin says, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. This explains so perfectly how we are not our human meat suit running around and that we cannot seek spirituality and become spiritual. We already are. 
Again, we must remove the layers of false identity and wounding to get back to our natural state of being spiritual. I believe that if we are honest with ourselves, that the most fascinating problem in the world is who am I? I don't think there can be any more fascinating preoccupation than that, because it's so mysterious, it's so elusive. What do you mean? What do you feel when you say the word I, I myself? What do you think you are? We speak of coming into this world. We didn't. We came out of it. Then furthermore, when you realize that in a world where there are no eyes, the sun would not be light. And that in a world where there were no soft skins, rocks would not be hard. Nor in a world where there were no muscles, would they be heavy. Existence is relationship, and you are smack in the middle of it. Here, Alan Watts, the writer, speaker, and philosopher who brought Eastern philosophy to Western spiritual seekers, share some deep truths and paradox. The unraveling of layers of existence being in relationship to or projection of our ego. When someone asks me what religion I am, I oftentimes respond, Taoist and quantum physics. Some will shrug it off and allow it to be. Others will drill in and ask me what that means. I started studying the Tao and Buddhism with my ex-fiance in 2002. It was a magical journey of understanding the way of nature. The way, the Tao all of existence and this ineffable vacuum, it is said that if you are explaining the Tao, then that is not the Tao. It's a magical opening into trust and surrender of what is. This is when things flow, brilliance and unfolding with ease. How often we forget this and try to plan and plan and plan. Quantum physics simply states that we are co-creating our reality with our thoughts. We can and do indeed impact our experience at a subatomic level. So between this and the way of the Tao, to me, life is explained pretty simply from both a spiritual and scientific perspective. And the cool thing is, science and spirituality are melding together, sharing their genius with each other, creating the whole new wacky way of explaining our experience of our experience. Another funny, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Oh, so easy to forget and try to force things to happen. Do you do that? Notice the next time you feel as if you're forcing something and just let go. Feel the spiritual essence of yourself, of life, of all that is, and just breathe. High vibrations will attract other high vibrations. Simply, it is law. Blasted off, touching the Godhead, literally feeling as if I'm splattered into all that is, totally void of any experience of self, I open. Sacred geometry shape-shifting and opening in the most beautiful endless kaleidoscope of colors and infinite amounts of love. The most I've ever experienced in my life, almost too much to handle. I surrender again and again and again. As the loving light permeates my being and my sense of self becomes even further and further from my clinging grasp. 
as I lay on my back in a yurt in the San Diego mountains, I start to come back to being in my body. This time being in my body feels quite different. I literally just experienced God, the stars, and all of creation. In one word, grateful. This from Eckhart Tolle, the author and spiritual leader from The Power of Now. It is through gratitude for the present moment that the spiritual dimension of life opens up. This journey was about 30 minutes, but seemed like millions of years. 5-MeO-DMT is the strongest psychedelic on the face of the earth. And as far as I've experienced, the most powerful and fastest way to explore spirituality from all angles, all truths, all possibilities. It literally donkey punches your ego in the face, and it's truly a blast off into all of creation in a split second. It is hands down the most intense, most courageous, and most transformative thing I've ever done. And it's not for anyone who is not ready to know themselves or spirit at that level. I can say this with absolute certainty. This from one of my all-time favorite documentaries, What the Bleep Do We Know? Who are we? Where do we come from? What should we do? And where are we going? Why are we here? Well, that is the ultimate question, isn't it? What is reality? What I thought was unreal now, for me, seems in some ways to be more real than what I think to be real, which seems now more to be unreal. Asking yourself these deeper questions opens up new ways of being in the world. It brings in a breath of fresh air. It makes life more joyful. The real trick to life is not to be in the know, but be in the mystery. Welcome to the Face Your Dragon podcast, where we help you, a messenger with a mission, leverage your fear to amplify your voice in the world. On the show, we open up the concept that what you are most afraid of and most resisting are the very things that will set you free. With courage, with clarity, with contribution, you can have it all. This show will engage in deep, enriching conversation with thought leaders, best-selling authors, celebrities, athletes, icons, and regular Joes who have faced their fear and are now using it to create impact in the world. I'm Brad Axelrad, and I'll be your host. My dear friend JP Sears is an all-around funny, deep, and thoughtful dude. I'm truly honored to bring his brilliant and playful ways to you today. He's famous for being known as the ultra spiritual guy with over 250 million views of his hilarious and ultra spiritual videos. His best-selling book just came out this year called How to Be Ultra Spiritual, 12 and a Half Steps to Spiritual Superiority, and it's sure to be a blockbuster and will crack open even the most guarded of egos. He's a certified holistic coach, advanced practitioner, faculty member for the Czech Institute, an emotional healing coach and international teacher. He leads retreats around the world on different healing and personal empowerment themes for like-minded and like-hearted people to come together and learn, grow, and heal. Listen in as we dive deep into human dynamics from many angles and play with the thought that humor can heal our hearts. JP Sears, it's great to have you on the Face Your Dragon podcast, brother. Welcome. 
Thank you, Brad. I would have felt very awkward if you unwelcomed me on the podcast you invited me to be on. But nonetheless, yeah, well, we could, we, could, we could do that right now. I mean, we could just end it now and say, great having you. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave here feeling not good enough, which will be good. It'll be familiar. Like it'll be it'll feel terrible, but like awesome that it's also familiar. Yeah, that terrible wounded self that we that we get so hooked and addicted to, right? And yeah, it's like we feel so good not feeling good. We find some just sadistic sense of comfort through our discomfort because it's familiar and we start replicating it unconsciously so that we feel in control and we think that's awesome and it's all at the expense of ourselves. Yeah. Anything else like pessimistically we should be doomsdaying about? Yeah, let's let's dive into that. But seriously, man, I mean, how can you be ultra spiritual when, you know, is that actually the essence of ultra spirituality? It's this arrogance of I'm so beyond my wounding that I'll always be positive and happy and I'll never have pain. Man, I think you captured it very well. It's definitely arrogance. And I would like add to it, not only arrogance that I'm so far beyond my wounding and pain that I'm always happy, but also I'm beyond my neediness. I'm beyond, you know, my flaws. I'm beyond being a human. It's like I'm so egotistical that I have no ego anymore. At least I'm so egotistical that I need to tell people I have no ego. So long story short, being ultra spiritual is about denying the beautiful, flawed amazingness that is being human. So in that denial, right, our shadow, our dragon, there's juice there. If we avoid it and don't tap into that, we're missing a huge sort of spectrum of life, right? I mean, if we're in this poly... Uh, not polyamory, although we could go there, but Pollyanna, (laughs) if we live in Pollyanna, what what aspects of life are we missing? Man, uh, you know, only only all the meaningful ones. (laughs) I I think, you know, a lot of us, and by a lot of us, I mean myself and probably all people that I've met, uh, we spend at least a phase of our life, if not our whole life, making our purpose to be comfortable. And I think comfort and meaning are relatively opposed. I think the more we're willing to go into discomfort, face our dragons, the more meaning we encounter, but the more we're only willing to uh, exist in a comfort zone, it means we're obviously avoiding discomfort and we're also running dry of meaning. And you mentioned like the juice of life. Yeah, to me, that the juice of life, our meaning, our purpose, like our inner satisfaction that seems so intangible. To me, that comes from the shadow, the darkness, and integrating the darkness, you know, the things we don't know about ourselves, the things we're ashamed of, the things that are painful about ourselves, integrating those into our conscious awareness to me is where the juice comes from. And you know, hearing you talk to me, like this analogy comes to mind. It's like, okay, if I if I picked up like this amazing, juicy, organic orange, but before I juiced it or before I ate it, I realized like there's a little bit of juice on the outside and that made my fingers kind of sticky. And that's like, oh, I, I don't like that. That's a little uncomfortable. So let me throw this juicy, amazing thing away because it made my fingers a little sticky. And I think we do that to ourselves with our dragons. We take a look at this amazing source of nourishment and juice and we throw it away. 
Well, I think we do it with ourselves. It's such a brilliant point. We do it in relationship. Uh, you know, my dear friend Susan Leahy, just a couple episodes ago, shared, uh, She she's episode uh, 12. She shared how only one aspect of our experience or an argument with someone, that's not, not the totality of who we are. I thought it was so brilliant that essentially don't, don't pin me or judge me or peg me to that aspect of myself. There's all these other possibilities, the darkness, the light, the fear, yeah. the, all the patterns, all the experiences. So I love that though. I mean, do you have any comments around that not being the totality of who you are? Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> I think there's always more to ourselves than what we think there is. And one of my favorite authors, a guy named uh, James Hollis, he's a Jungian psychologist. Uh, he says there's more that you don't know about yourself compared to what you do know about yourself. And I, I think we become so self-identified uh, at the expense of the rest of us. So we might be identified with one conversation. We might be identified with one role we have. And being fixated on that uh, helps us ignore the rest of us. And I think that's maybe the greatest sin, if there ever was such a thing as a sin, is being disconnected from uh, who we really are, the totality of who we are, because we're fixated on either something we like, and okay, I, I don't want to look at anything else because I only like this one thing about me, or it's maybe a point of pain that's very familiar, so we're fixated with that and very identified with it. So man, I to me, arrogance says I know who I am. To me, humbleness says there is a shitload more about me that I have no idea about. And that's awesome. Yes. And I would also add to that, whatever I think I know about myself is just a convenient delusion. Even what I think I know about myself probably has very little correlation to what's true about myself. So I think when we can let that go and face the dragon of who we really are, rather than being complacent in the comfort zone of who we want to be and who we think we are, I think the dragon always gives us more of us. And of course, the dragon breathes fire. The dragon appears to be the dragon for a reason, because it's scary. The scary part, like we talked about, I mean, that's the power. Let's dive into more dragons. I'm curious what some of the biggest dragons you've had to face. You know, you use levity to, to laugh at our silly, wounded selves and our ego, and I just... I love that, but there's been some darkness in your in your past, I'm sure, brother. What are some of the biggest dragons you've had to face? Uh, you know, it's tough being perfect, Brad. You know, I've been whole and complete my entire life, and uh, man, it's awesome. <clears throat> Got it. Okay, so next question. Um, <laughs> Talk about the weather at this point. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a lot of them. Um, you know, one of them that I'm not going to pretend it's reconciled. I think it's a dragon that I'm still working on, you know, allowing it to eat me, if you will, is when I was a, a child, a few things. One of them was my father was a drinker. My mother was codependent on him being a drinker and mom in bed with anxiety often and dad either psychologically absent and physically absent at times. So that was too scary for me to deal with. So I, I, I oscillated into the place of essentially running my family. I became the parent and I became so arrogant as a young, you know, five, six, seven year old child where I tried to be the, the stable one in the family. 
that caused me to become very emotionally disconnected because I didn't feel safe enough to feel emotions that didn't feel safe. I think in order to feel vulnerable emotions, we have to have a sense of safety that says it's safe enough to feel unsafe. But I didn't feel safe enough. Instead, I went about a very uh, arrogant way of trying to always be in control, always being stable, always the one that can take care of someone else, and uh, never feeling my emotions. So I, I think it was probably, oh, was I at 22? Uh, and I cried for the first time, and it was at least six years, maybe longer. And and that was definitely a turning point where I. Uh, I had my illusion of being strong and stable shattered. And I started to connect with the vulnerabilities that I was denying and covering up with this facade of strength and stability. And really at the, the heart of this dragon that I'm talking about is the feeling of I'm not enough. Because the more I would try to take care of my family, be stable for them, make mom, mom happy, make dad stable, make them make their marriage stay together, the more I tried all that, the more life proved I can't do that. So I inevitably uh, leave with this feeling of I'm not enough, which would make me try harder next time, which would make me feel even less enough the next next time. So th- that was definitely a big time Uh, dragon for me. And if I were summarizing all that in like one sentence, it would be, I was terrified of my own emotions and terrified of not having control. I can relate to both of those very much. Growing up in in a similar environment, kind of being the glue, the, the, the five, six, it's so weird. Like I'm feeling really emotional as you're sharing this, JP, like feeling like the glue that held the dysfunction of mom and dad together, the the arguing, the fighting, almost out of survival to keep them together, right? Because you because there yeah. would, right there would be this experience of oh my gosh, if they divorce, then what? And God, of I really, course. I really, really get that, dude. It's uh, it's a it's an interesting place to be. But I I don't know that I went into checkout. It's interesting to hear that your strategy or pattern of behavior or conditioning was to just like disconnect from emotion. Oh, man, like completely psychopathic of me, uh, or maybe sociopathic is the right Right. term. So, I mean, really, really emotionally disconnected. And and it was it a conscious choice. Like, hell no, I didn't even know what the term emotionally connected or disconnected meant when I was a child. But it was very much an unconscious survival mechanism, because at some level, my emotions felt like a threat. So my way of avoiding that threat for the sake of feeling like I can survive is uh, I just disconnect from the emotions. They were there, but I wouldn't feel them. That's the disconnection. It's like in my body, my physiology, my meridians, uh, you know, they'd be strangulated. Like the, the water wants to flow through the garden hose, but I would kink it so I wouldn't feel what's in the garden hose. And yeah, I mean, just an absolute mechanism of emotional control by denying all emotions. And I I think the the mantra of my childhood, I'm probably not the only one, but certainly my mantra was uh, survival depends on being in control. And now it's weird because it seems like, you know, not from a self-preservation point of view, but a self-realization point of view here for my adult self, 
if I pretend I'm a, an adult for a second, it's like self-realization point of view says thriving depends on surrendering control. And to me, like, I don't know about you, Bray, but to me, that self-preservation instinct that says be in control versus the self-realization instinct that says surrender control, it's like they're opposing forces. And it's it's almost like there's the the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder, and they're always on the shoulders. You know, the, the devil that wants to be in control is always there. Curious if you ever have that dichotomy of control versus surrender struggle. I appreciate you flipping that back on me. Um, That's how I avoid looking at myself. I ask other people about themselves. That's a great uh, deflection. I appreciate you noticing my deflection, Brad, and I'm afraid that you noticing my deflection is you deflecting from yourself. Well, let's keep going down this. So you saying that to me, I feel, I feel hurt and afraid and challenged, so therefore I will just deflect that that challenge from you. I'm I'm personally petrified that you feel hurt. Uh, I feel like I'm a failure and unable to take care of you emotionally. So I'm going to dramatically disconnect from what I'm feeling right now and go into an analysis of the situation so I can think about it instead of feeling about it. Okay, but now I'm feeling abandoned and you're leaving me. Should we end now? I'm blacked out at this point, Brad, (laughs) and I'm not going to recover these memories for about 25 years. That's great. Until until something triggers you and maybe maybe I'll... Uh, do something that'll stir that up, but then I'll be triggered and make it about me after you're triggered. Like, hey, what about me in this scenario? You can't feel what you're feeling. Only I can. That's not fair. Well, as a plight of anyone who's suffering with abandonment issues, it's your fault that you were abandoned because you weren't good enough. That's what I experienced at age seven. That's exactly it. And I now making my parents wrong, I'm going to blame them until all of eternity. And I will never take responsibility for my own power or my own self-love. I'll continue to point the finger at them and call them uh, guilty instead of guilty, but not to blame. Yeah, man, I like that. And I, my, my sense is that if you can actually blame them hard enough, then you'll have a good life. <laughs> Do you have any t- tips or pointers on how to really just take zero responsibility for your life? Like, how do you do that? Well, <laughs> well, first off, I think you've revealed the the biggest key to a successful life is taking zero responsibility and always come from a dogmatic place of victimization where you blame everybody for everything going on in your life. So for me, it's very important, Brad, now that we <laughs> talked about it, you always want to ask for help. But don't let people help you. You want to ask for help, but reaffirm your sense of control by not allowing people to help you after you ask for help. Mm -hmm. To me, that's very important. (laughs) Got it. And then then I think also we, we want to take a look at like, what do we want in life that we don't have? And then have conversations with our parents and find faults in how they raised us to justify why we don't have what we want and be sure to let them know about it so they can do it better next time. Yeah, I think they really appreciate that. I've noticed that, especially in women I'm dating or in a relationship with. If I, you know, if I really accuse them, it doesn't put them at all on the defense. They feel very seen and felt and yeah, it's great. It really it puts them into this awesome place of survival. They love that. I mean, people so appreciate when you you make things wrong in your life, their fault. <laughs> it like talk about deep appreciation. Like they've just learned something that's created a meaningful shift in their heart. Mm. 
Yeah, it could be very love based when we when we just take no ownership. And yeah, I love that. I'm, I love projection is one of the most powerful weapons. You know, if you weaponize it, it's really really powerful. <laughs> I would say I think it's probably the most used weapon in emotional <laughs> violence present day. Yeah, like the like a control drama to steal from Celestine prophecy, like a an energy drama or a control drama, or to use landmarks technology or language, like run a racket on somebody and go into <laughs> dominance when you don't get your way. Like that, that's always really fruitful, right? Oh, I, I I think so. If one thing about people is they love to be controlled by you. <laughs> so I think the more you can dominate them, whether you're dominating them through active polarity or you become submissive as a way of dominating people through a passive polarity and people love to and i also find brad uh by the way i i think we're also on the verge of collectively writing a relationship book i think the more we can control a loved one in our life the deeper the intimacy and connection is. Well, it's so true i mean you and amber did a video on that and it was articulate it articulated that right Absolutely. Our, uh, what was that? That our uh, passive aggressive relationship technique video. Correct. (laughs) Yeah, it was so brilliant when when I think you were in the kitchen and, and she walks up and says, Oh, I'm I'm gonna work out this week. And what did you say, dude? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. it's great. You never work out or something. Yeah, I'm surprised you're working out that much or whatever I said. But yeah, the the backhanded compliments, uh, the snarky comments, you know, the misguided projections. Those are all very important passive aggressive relationship techniques to enrich one's relationship. Because I mean, if we're not connecting via passive aggressiveness, then what is there to connect with? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, you could be more direct about it uh, and just be insulting, right? And <laughs> it's just literal direct insult. Yeah, you know, that that's one way to do that, Brad. And I don't want to say that's wrong, but I will say it's incorrect uh, because the challenge with being directly insulting to the person who you love and deserves to be treated well is... If you're being directly insulting, it's harder to pretend that you're acting loving to them. But if you're insulting Mm -hmm. them through passive aggressive criticism, Mm -hmm. it's way easier for you both to pretend that you're being loving with each other. It seems like that could bury some of the shame or you, you won't break out the shame stick and hit it over your head with that because at that stage, you'll just be so such an asshole directly that you may feel release like you might spread some emotional poison and and not have your own pain you'll have to deal with like Miguel Ruiz talks about and just spread your emotional poison and just get it out of you I mean that's always I I feel a great way to relate to blow off steam is to just dump into somebody and and just you know get all accusatory about how bad and wrong they are and just shame them for being unlovable and not good enough right a hundred percent I mean the with the wisdom of your message is just kind of like if you had the Ebola virus, the best way to get rid of the Ebola virus is to infect other people with the Ebola virus that you have. So it gets it out of you. And I think that's medical technology. It is. It's amazing how that works. I'll have to keep that in mind. Uh, Next time I see somebody with a dengue or something down here in Costa Rica, I'll just share, hey, you really should try to give that to someone else. It'll help. For sure. And they'll appreciate it because now they have adversity to strengthen them. Ooh, then there's back. Now we're coming full circle, JP. Now we're attaching back to that misery that we love so much. Our egos love that. I got For it. Sure. Yeah, man. I I think we just, uh, I feel like we just wrote a holy book, Brad. 
holy book <laughs> oh yeah I, I feel like we just channeled something big yeah uh, through us in that last part of the conversation well be sure to get the transcript and make sure that we package that up into something powerful could be a video that, yeah or or perhaps a 300 dollars ebook that's four pages long you know just so, so cheap no. Well, it normally sells for $997, but today oh. it's only $300. Uh-huh. I got it. I got it. All right. So I don't want to get serious because I'm loving this witty banter that I rarely am able to, to have someone match me. I mean, you're you're so incredible, JP. I feel like I'm giving my power away as I'm saying <laughs> that very intentionally so that I can pedestal you and then and then play the pattern that I've done before. And that's do positive transference and put people on a pedestal so that I somehow can feel in control from this unconscious less than state. Yeah, I think you're dominating me through being submissive. Oh, exactly. But but I'm allowing it, so I think I'm truly dominating you. Yeah, well, codependency is a beautiful thing. How it you know how it switches back and forth that way. We play these roles, right? Of of a hero, savior, or a perpetrator, <laughs> or a victim. It's like this yeah. incredible triangle of love. It's so amazing. <laughs> Oh, man, so incredible. <laughs> but yeah, with that said, I, I am happy to slide down the serious slide with you as well, brother. <laughs> the great thing is we are in this in this ridiculous banter. It's uh, it's a whole perspective, and I'm, I'm finding a different appreciation of the levity that you're creating in the videos. Uh, you know, my dear brother, Kyle Cease, sending love his way. His mom just passed, and yeah. uh, he's, yeah. he's really in it right now, and... Um, one thing that that I've always appreciated about Kyle and even Craig Shoemaker, who's a comedian on podcasts like episode maybe seven or eight, the power of levity and you know humor that can open your heart through the funny, and then the seriousness can can really permeate and penetrate. I'm noticing I'm in a better state as I'm feeling more elated and happy, and whatever's flowing through me, oxytocin or <laughs> dopamine or adrenaline, all of it. Uh, I feel better, and I, I just want to challenge all the listeners to recognize that we can sometimes deliver with humor, and I'm, I'm telling myself that as much that I need to point the finger back at me and really recognize that there's so much power in levity and humor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, can you, because you're doing that perfectly. How, how are you finding that as a core tool for you? Yeah, one, I love your reflection on it. And uh, to me, humor, at least the, the way I try to uh, deploy humor, use a big word like deploy, made me feel sophisticated, is I look at it as a way of softening the shell that we all have around our heart. So it's kind of like before you plant seeds on the farm, you're going to rototill the soil. You've got to soften it or else nothing's going to go in beneath the hard, crusty surface. So I think humor can do that. And you and I were just doing in our spontaneous banter, from my point of view, is we were being playful with very threatening concepts. We were being very playful with some of the core roots of shame that many of us have, be it rooted in childhood through family issues, being a victim, perpetrator. So we took these these concepts that are typically so shameful, we don't know about them, so hurtful that we pretend they're not there, or we try to avoid them to the best we can. And what you and I just did is played with them 
which I think, aside from whatever the listeners observed, I think what it taught maybe you and I is these these concepts, these fears, these experiences, these traumas, these pains, they scare us to death and they actually won't hurt us. Part of the purpose of the energy of playfulness and humor about inherently threatening concepts of the human heart is so that we can teach ourselves these things I've been afraid of my whole life actually won't hurt me. You, you know, you and I, we, we didn't get hurt. I would dare say there was nothing you said and nothing I said that didn't come from our life experience. And we revealed it and we didn't get hurt. And I think what allowed us to talk about them is we were doing it through a language of playfulness, not seriousness. I think there's an energy of playfulness that creates a levity. Oh, you're so uh, right. I mean, I felt more open. I felt possibility and curiosity and and also a little grief as I shared some things. And even, even when you were sharing, I, I was experiencing the grief. So you're right. It doesn't kill us. It can It can bring up old wounding. Which, you know, we have to, you guys, it's, it's imperative that we have the courage to face our crap. If we don't, we'll just, as Coot Blackson was sharing on, the, on last week's podcast, we'll drink it away, we'll social media yeah. it away, we'll sex it away, we'll pornography it away, whatever, whatever our distractions are, or our addictions are. So this is a very powerful tool to, you know, to, to bounce off with people. Like maybe, maybe this is actually something, I don't know if you've ever done this, but this, this just downloaded like in a workshop, JP, get people to, to get very funny and playful about their, about their experience. Like, let's say you had them doing dyads. Like let's say listeners, if you're with a friend and you want to just joke about your darkest, scariest stuff, but stay in that state of rapport with the humor and rapport with each other in the humor and make fun of it, just play with it. Yeah. Have you ever thought to do that? Yeah, for sure. And and I think a great way to get playful uh, with our challenges, our pains, is to exaggerate them. It's like, you know, if we looked at this shame, if we encountered our greatest fear, what are we afraid would happen? What's the worst thing we can imagine happening? And then let's exaggerate that. And let's speak that out loud to our friend. Let's really get playful with our imagination and whatever we're afraid, let's imagine it's going to be 10 times worse. And I think that playfulness allows us to see the ridiculousness of our own self. And I think the most ridiculous thing about ourselves is when we avoid ourselves, when we avoid emotions, when we avoid discomfort that we're afraid is going to be there, when we we, uh, try something new or when we uh, go back to an old wound. So, yeah, I think there's great merit in that. And, you know, I I would also say just quick disclaimer, time and a place for playfulness. I I think when we look at, say, the five stages of grief, you know, when we're in in an initial grief stage, let's just say, you know, you mentioned uh, our wonderful friend Kyle Cease. His mother passed away a few days ago. I don't think now is the appropriate time for Kyle to use humor as a way of processing the pain with his mother. I think in the acute stage of a pain or a trauma, uh, vulnerability and more straightforward grief is what's very appropriate. But once we've gone through a few stages of grieving, then I think humor becomes 
a wonderful tool to help us release and process and emote. And I think, honestly, for 95% of what we carry around, it's old stuff that's very ripe to be picked with a hand of humor. Very, very valid point. I, I heard a lot of layers to that. And one that came to mind would be sort of a humor bypass, right? For sure. Uh, yeah, never never ending jokes is something I learned at the Hoffman Institute, right? The, that guy that's constantly deflecting any emotion with humor. So yeah, we're certainly not suggesting that. I know I know you're not JP and I'm I'm not either. But that's interesting. There's there's a time and a place for humor and wow, you said it so brilliantly that all the old wounds were way along the grief cycle, right? Sure. I mean, they are still deeply in, in our muscle and in our neural pathways, but uh, they're ripe. It was brilliantly said, man. Yeah, well, thank you, Brad. I think it was brilliant of you to see that as brilliant. Ah, okay. So now I'm feeling honored and seen and safe. I get my safety from external things, not from internal things or my own connection to source. I only feel safe if everyone around me makes me feel safe. That's an externalization of my own a sense of self. Wow, I love that. Part of me feels very gratified and believes that I made you feel better about yourself. And yet another part of me is now secretly afraid that next time we talk, I won't do a good enough job of making you at least this happy. So I'm afraid that I won't meet your expectations next time. So I'm confused because I feel two opposite things at the same time. Ooh, interesting. But that may, might, might make you try a lot harder. And then, and then you'll be in that perpetual place of continually trying really hard to please me. And then that will work for both of us really well in the end. That works. And I think I'm delusional enough that by trying to please you, I can eventually earn your love. And I believe that if I try to earn your love, I'll actually get your love one day if I do enough to earn it. <laughs> just keep just keep trying there. Um, mm. Yeah. And I'll make you work for it, too. I'll, I'll weaponize my power position, knowing that I have control over you. And I will uh, make sure that that you know that I'll be very dominant and, and very submissive. I'll also shut off a lot. Like I really like myself and I like how others grovel up to me when I'm in this place of shut down and, and disconnect or or when I just go dark or ghost on texts and things. And it, oh, yeah. I, yeah, I really like putting people into that place of the unknown and just making them have to guess and read my mind. It's very comfortable. Yeah, it makes me feel very controlled and definitely makes me question myself through manic anxiety because I don't know what's going on. I get that. You know, I would be compassionate, but that would take me out of the control position and I just yeah. don't want to lose that control. Yeah, yeah. But, and, I, and I understand that. Right. Absolutely. Right. You'll, you'll try harder for that because of that. There's no question. <laughs> So good, dude. I, I love this. Um, it's a beautiful aspect of myself that's finding uh, all of these little things that are floating around in my head that are wounds, that are things I've done to people, things that have been done to me. Like, it's just great to make fun of them and to highlight and uh, surface them. So thanks, man. Oh, yeah, for sure. And thank you. Have you done any of um, any reading or studies of Carl Jung's stuff? I have just sporadically, not deep dive. No. Yeah, I mean, kind of same with me. I'm not a Jung scholar. In fact, I hate reading his work because it seems just so un, un understandable the way he wrote. Right. But I love reading other people's writing about his work. Right. So 
nonetheless, through what's probably 90th hand information, uh, allegedly Carl Jung's whole perspective was the journey of healing slash enlightenment is simply make the unconscious conscious. And I think what that might just mean in slightly different words is discover new things about yourself, whether they're comfortable, whether they're old, whether they're new, whatever it is, or painful. And that's somehow going to be contributing to the healing and journey of enlightenment. Well, it's so important to go in there, right, and do some ferreting out or excavation of that stuff. And I pray that uh, everybody listening will have the courage to face your shadow, face your dragon, find the stuff that's running you in the unconscious mind, illuminate it. And the cool thing is, is that once you do that, as you said before, JP, it's not as scary as you think it is. It's not as big and as bad. And when you illuminate it, it becomes your strength. As I've mentioned many times on the podcast my greatest fear was public speaking. I was mortified to public speak. I still get very nervous, even though I've done it hundreds of times. But that's the very thing that set me free. That's the thing that's allowed me to live in Costa Rica or out of an RV that I'm about to buy and travel the US in an RV, interviewing cool people like JP and all these other brilliant minds I get to share time with. So, you know, what is that one thing that you found in you, JP, that once you faced it, it was like your greatest gift and greatest power? Well, I think the first answer is probably going to be pretty global, not specific, but it would be uh, surrendering control and getting a little bit more specific on that big global thing. I'm a big fan of honoring my heart. Uh, and, you know, I, accordingly, I don't like to make decisions based on what I think. I like to make decisions based on what I feel and not like emotional reactivity, but the, the feeling in my heart. Does this feel lighter and expansive? Does this feel heavier and constrictive? When I honor my heart and let my yeses and nos be dictated by my heart, man, it's so scary and so liberating Things become more graceful, success follows, opportunity follows, and it's always scary. Like, for instance, this past January, my heart was telling me, let go of my client practice. And like how that showed up practically is like each day when I look at my daily schedule with clients, like I'd feel heavier and yes. constricted. It's like my heart's saying no when I'm looking at it. Then when I'm doing other things, my heart's like saying yes, like it feels lighter, expansive. There's more excitement and passion. So man, that was pissing me off because my client practice is awesome. I'd worked 15 years to build it up and it's successful and I get to help wonderful people and I get to learn about myself. It's a great thing. And I was being called to let it go. Easy for me to let go of a crappy thing, but to let go of something great, mm. whoa, that is so scary. You know, because our friend Kyle Cease, he has a wonderful saying, the mind can measure what it will lose, but it can't measure what it'll gain. So I can measure the great stuff that I'll lose, but I can't measure the great things that'll come my way because it's a mystery. It's still in the shadow. It's yet to materialize. There's no guarantees that it will materialize. So, you know, recently, the specifically following my heart, uh, actually, in a couple of ways, one is letting go of my client practice. And then the other thing that uh, has been huge with me lately that my following my heart has led me to 
is saying yes to prioritizing my relationship. So in my relationship with Amber, who I know is a, an incredibly dear friend of yours, you've known her longer than I have. So Amber, she's just the absolute love of my life. And when I met her, my heart was just saying, prioritize her, prioritize this relationship. And other parts of me are shit scared, like, no work. You know, I, I get my self worth from work. And what if my work suffers? And what if I don't produce as much? And what if, what if, what if? And my heart just kept saying yes to the relationship. And not just like, yes, have this relationship, but it was saying yes, have it in a big way. Like, this isn't supposed to be little corner of your life. This is meant to like, this deserves to be rooted in a large landscape of your life, JP. So as I was listening to my heart, like I just kept saying yes to the yeses, which meant like I have to feel the fears that come up and being willing to say yes, when my heart would tell me to say yes, and honor that it grace follows. Yes, there's a scary dark forest, but grace always follows it in my experience. And the relationship with Amber has been a, a huge blessing that's only been afforded in my life, because I was willing to not pay attention to what my mind wanted, but pay attention to what my heart wanted. And in fact, for the, the year before uh, Amber and I came into each other's lives. Anytime someone would say, oh, JP, are you looking for a relationship? My head would answer. My head would say, hell no. I, you know, I don't want to take time for a relationship because I, I just want to prioritize my career and be fully devoted to that. So that's what my head wanted. That's what my thinking wanted. But my heart definitely wanted something different when Amber came along. And at so this point, beautiful. Brad, I've completely lost sight of the question, but I can ramble for another 11 hours. Well, yeah. I mean, just make up whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's... <laughs> and we were just about to talk about cold fusion. Exactly. That's that's fine. Quantum physics, anything's great. But no, that was a beautiful. Thank you for sharing that incredible tribute to many things, to you following your heart, to you checking in with your head, but not being led by your intellect. I love to paraphrase Einstein and say that uh, the intellect is a wonderful servant, but a horrible master. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And it's just, uh, I've been living by that for so long. And of course I forget and I get in my head and I'm, I get all wrapped up in my patterns and forget my heart and all that stuff. But, yeah. uh, and then also to hear the tribute of you for your divine love with her. It's beautiful to hear. And I, I'm just so awesome to know that that's where you're at. Cause I, I haven't heard you say that. So it's great to hear. It warms my heart to hear that. Mm. Oh yeah, absolutely brother. Yeah. So that, that feels good. And I, uh, I feel softened. The whole front of my body even feels softened knowing that you guys have got a good thing going on. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. And I, I love how you're connected to your body sensations that, yeah, that actually makes me feel more connected to mine, knowing that you connected to me mm. at a feeling level. And I'm actually not just saying this as a joke. You yeah. know, it feels like we're beginning a banter session. We almost but... did, but I wanted to, I was testing. I'm like, where's he going with that? Are we going full banter or no? All right. So thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm extremely empathic and highly clairsentient and lots of somatic sensitivity, extremely sensitive somatically. Okay, so what are you up to in the world right now? Let's see, you know, a few things I'm doing is uh, videos as usual, even though each video is a new beginning with the subject matter I'm doing comedy on and how I do it. 
Uh, and then I'm also about to start the second leg of my book tour. I'll be going to New York and Austin, California, uh, some other places that I forgot. So I'm about to start some fast-paced travel again. Yeah, and then with the book tour, I'm uh, what I love about that is I'm you know I'm putting on shows that involve stand-up comedy and stand-up authenticity, and that for me is it's a great art form in and of itself. It's like okay, the, having a book and sort of promoting the book with this book tour is like just not even the real purpose, but being able to connect with audiences. Uh, through the art of comedy and then just the non-art of sheer authenticity, just speaking from the heart is something that really enlivens me. So I'm thrilled to uh, get the show back on the road. Sounds like fun. When are you in California? I think it is about middle of June, which is coming up. I guess that might be it's, next week. It's like a week from now. Yeah, it's coming oh, up. Oh, right. yeah. Yeah. So pretty soon. There you go. Where, where does everybody find it? couple places all my social media is awaken with jp and you know the usual suspects facebook youtube instagram are great versions of that to connect with me on uh, awaken with jp and then my website that's got my upcoming events and tour stops is also awakenwithjp.com so awaken with jp if you want to find me and if you find me incredibly offensive then avoid everything awaken with jp <laughs> that's probably good. We might stir up some of their stuff, though. We need that. <laughs> cool. So what's what's one final thing you can share with everybody? Man, I would dare say you're not who you think you are. You're more than that. And uh, nor are you who you want to be. Uh, you are something way bigger and more mysterious than even who you want to be. So those are words, Brad, that I probably need to hear, yet it's just something that I'm motivated to invite other people to consider because I think it's very easy to be seduced by the fairy tale grandeur that we lace around who we want to be. But I believe who we want to be oftentimes represents self-rejection, but it's just justified because we have noble rationalizations around it. But I think who we really are is way more important than who we want to be. And I think who we really are delivers so much more value to us than who we want to be or who we think we are. So in other words, keep leaning into the mystery of who you really are. So well said. Stay open to the the unknown. You said there's more of us, there's more to us in the unknown than the known, right? And early on in the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. Thank you, brother. All right. For we're sure. gonna we're gonna wrap there. It's been an honor, JP. I'm so glad you said yes to uh the Face Your Dragon podcast and were courageous enough to step up and say yes and share some of your darkness, your light, your levity, all the layers. I just appreciate someone that is as dynamic as you and can bring all these different elements to something. It's uh, it's a rare find, and I'm guessing that's why you're so successful, because you're tapping into all these different things. You're being these different things. You're acting in these different things. So thanks for stepping up and being all of you, my friend. Oh, thank you, brother. You're welcome. I appreciate you recognizing me and I appreciate what you're doing in the world. And it's an honor to be on your lovely offering, one of your lovely offerings. And uh, now that we're done with dress rehearsal, do you want to record? Yeah, I forgot to hit record. Shoot, I probably should have done that. 
Yeah. I just wanted to get our throats warmed up, you know, because I was coughing a little bit. I'll edit them all out. But yeah, I thought the coughing might be fun. And then also a uh, practice session. So yeah. Perfect. Good. Yeah, we can just go back to the beginning of the script. Okay. We'll do three hours next time. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Because I know you're not busy at all, dude. I, I, <laughs> okay, brother. Thanks a lot, man. I'll, t- I'll see you soon. Much love. Sounds great, Brad. Same to you, brother. I want to thank our guest for sharing his heart and brilliance with us. Thank you, J.P. Sears. We are all so grateful for your contribution to the world, you silly bastard. You can find out more about J.P. Sears at awakenwithjp.com. And as we dive deeper into facing your dragon, I want to offer you the opportunity for you to discover the number one hidden fear stopping you from earning what you're worth. Be sure to take the one-minute quiz at couragequiz.com. If there's something here I mentioned that you want to review again, keep in mind we keep all the notes for you, including links to everything we've talked about today. You can find the show notes for this episode at faceyourdragon.com forward slash episode 016. And finally, I would like to invite you to subscribe and leave a five-star review for the Face Your Dragon podcast by visiting faceyourdragon.com forward slash subscribe. Be sure to share this episode with your tribe on social media if it was useful for you. We'd love that. And join our conversation in the Face Your Dragon Facebook group as we talk more about your greatest fears being the very thing that will set you free. Tune in to episode 17 because I'll be talking with my dear friend, the amazing Andy Dooley. He and his brother, Mike Dooley, from the hit movie The Secret, created Tut.com or Our Thoughts Become Things over 15 years ago. They've been sending millions of messages in that time with their Notes from the Universe fame as we discuss how high vibes are the key to experiencing joy and success in all aspects of life and how to take the mystery out of manifesting. This incredible being and many more on the Face Your Dragon podcast. See you on the next show. And remember, when you face your dragon and take the leap, you will break free. 